Having been raised in New Jersey, I assure you I would not have asked a group of kids to become wise guys. But I understand. Okay. Let me ask you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. I'm going to begin reading at verse 53 and then go through verse 5 of chapter 42. Genesis 41, verse 53. I'm going to read through verse 5 of chapter 42. Genesis 41 and verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan." pray together. Father, grant us wisdom as we look at this portion of your word. Uh, prepare us, Father, to understand, to recognize, and even to rejoice when we see your hand at work in our lives, even when you work in our lives through a severe mercy. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I've read a lot of the stories that come from ancient cultures that talk about a creation. They talk about the first man and the first woman. They even talk about a great flood. And I could give you copies of those stories. Those stories are, those stories from ancient cultures, they, they are fantastic. They are grotesque. They're genuinely grotesque, and they are clearly mythological. They do not read like the book of Genesis. Now, there are some things in the book of Genesis. It's, it's hard for us to get our arms around. I clearly admit that. But overall, the book of Genesis reads like history. It, it reads like a historical text. It, it contains 
genealogies. It, it relates its stories to people and events that are known in ancient cultures. And, and furthermore, it shows us its heroes, our heroes. It, it shows us its heroes, warts and all. It shows us that those heroes of the faith that appear in the book of Genesis are people just like you and me. And then to take it one step further, it shows us, it does, to put it negatively, it doesn't romanticize their lives. These people, people just like you and me, they live difficult lives. They live lives that are full of struggles. They live lives just like the lives that we live. But one of the reasons that we're given the book of Genesis is so that we can know the end of the story from the beginning. That's first of all. But secondly, it's so that the Lord can draw back the curtain, we can step behind the curtain, and we can see what God is doing, even as God uses severe mercies to accomplish in and through His people and the day-to-day realities of their lives to accomplish those things which are of temporal and eternal importance and of temporal and eternal good. And that's, that's really critical to us because our lives, our lives as believers, as those who have embraced Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and King, knowing that for us He died to pay the penalty for our sin and by His resurrection from the dead guarantees to us life, life abundant and life eternal. Our lives in this world are often filled with moments that we sometimes fail to recognize are a severe mercy sent by God. A severe mercy sent for the purpose of showing us that the only source of our strength is in the Lord. To show us that our only hope is in the Lord. To drive us back into the arms of our Father that there we might rest in understanding more clearly who He is and what He is about. For Him we might live for the sake of His glory and for the blessing of others. Severe Mercy is the title of a book written by Sheldon Vonnegan. Mr. Vonnegan's book are a number of letters written to him by C.S. Lewis, written to Mr. Vonnegan 
as he passed through one of those moments of severe mercy, as he passed through a moment when his life, when his wife was sick with a terrible, terrible disease. And Lewis writes to remind Mr. Vonnegut that these moments of severe mercy are not just accidents. These moments of severe mercy are sent by a loving Father to teach us things we could not otherwise learn and to show us our utter, total, complete dependence upon Him and upon His grace and upon His mercy. Genesis chapters 39 and following are full of severe mercies. I mean, just think about what is going on in the lives of these who are God's covenant people. These chapters are full of severe mercies. The severe mercies of God include Joseph. Uh, the severe mercies of God as they impact the lives of Jacob's extended dysfunctional family are just overwhelmingly challenging. I mean, what are, what's included in God's severe mercy here? God's severe mercy to His people requires that Joseph be sold into slavery, that he be falsely accused of rape, and that he be imprisoned for ten or more years. Sold into slavery, falsely accused, falsely charged, falsely imprisoned, and there you languish for ten years. And what are you supposed to think? What are you supposed to think? What do God's severe mercies include? God's severe mercy includes here in this, these historical events at the end of the book of Genesis, they include seven years of famine. The seven years of famine just don't accidentally come about. They are decreed by God. Seven years of famine. God's severe mercy will entail Joseph speaking, Joseph unrecognized, unknown to his brothers as of yet, Joseph speaking roughly to these men who have come to Egypt for the purpose of buying grain. And Joseph speaks roughly to them and he accuses them of being spies. And when all of this gets back to Jacob, here is Joseph's father and he is just emotionally, he is torn and battered. Don't lose sight of all of that, because it will be by these severe mercies. You're going, why is God doing it? It is because by these severe mercies, God will bring about the reconciliation of Joseph to his brothers, of the brothers to Joseph, of the brothers to one another, to Jacob to his sons. And by these severe mercies, 
this family, this, this extended dysfunctional family of Jacob's will become the family through which God will fulfill His covenant purposes, which will eventually lead to the coming of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our lives, our lives are filled. Our lives are filled with moments of severe mercy. Many of you are facing those moments right now. Many of you have faced those moments. All of you will at some time or another. Face a moment of God's severe mercy. Moments when, look at chapter 42, verse 28 of Genesis. Moments when, like like Joseph's brothers, you're going to find yourself wondering, at least in your mind, if not screaming out loud, what is this that God has done to us? Why does God do that? (laughs) Because we are a stubborn people. And sometimes it's the only way He can get our attention. It's sort of like taking the two-by-four and hitting the mule over the head. You know, and the farmer was asked, why are you doing that? And the farmer's response was, I just need to get His attention. Well, you go, I know what you want to say to me. You want to say to me, God doesn't need to do that to me. I'm paying attention. Really? Really? You're sure? You're confident? But you know, there's other reasons for God's severe mercy in your lives. Sometimes God's severe mercy is for the purpose of bringing you to faith. Sometimes God's severe mercy is for the purpose of strengthening your faith. Sometimes God's severe mercy in your life is for the sake of others. It's for the sake of others. Let me. There's a moment in my life of God's severe mercy. A moment that just terribly important to me. That moment of severe mercy was watching my father, only 65 years of age, die of cancer. I watched as his faith never wavered. And I know he's my hero, and I know that sounds like an extreme statement, but it is not. I watched his faith. It never wavered. All my daddy knew and all he needed to know was that his life was held in the arms of a loving father now have i wished many times that he hadn't died so young well of course his mom wished many times he hadn't died so young well of course but god's severe mercy ushered him into glory and then greatly impact, impacted and shaped my life and the, and the lives of others. I know that's true. I had a beloved uncle come to me and say, I want you to explain to me 
how it is that your daddy could face death with such peace. And I got to share with him the gospel. An opportunity I'm not sure I would have ever had if it wasn't for that particular severe mercy. Like Paul, I want to be able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me, to live my life is to live for His glory and for the good of others come whatever His sovereign hand may choose. Whatever He sends, may He use it to glorify Himself and impact the lives of others. And may I rest peacefully in, the, in knowing that one day I'll be absent from the body, but in that moment I will be present with my Lord. But of course, <laughs> there's the rub. <laughs> there's the rub. It, because often dying is not the problem. Dying's not the problem. Often the greatest challenge is to keep on keeping on day after day facing difficult situations and, and painful circumstances. You know, moments in which God's severe mercy just kind of leaves you wondering what's going on here. We'll, we'll look at here at Genesis 42 and 43. After seven years of plenty, seven years of famine have come. And there's no grain to be bought in Canaan. So the patriarch Jacob orders his ten oldest sons to go to Egypt to buy grain. Now I want you to feel, I want you just to feel how, how, how tense the situation is in this family. I know there are families here who wrestle with, with internal tensions all the time. Tensions within your family. Tensions that perhaps you would not want anyone else to know. Tensions that we today, you know, we come up with this fancy term, you know, it's, things are just dysfunctional. I think that simply means things aren't the way they're supposed to be. You know, which, if that's true, then most of our families at some time or other are dysfunctional. When things are just not what they're supposed to be. Well, look, up, look at this family. He sends his ten oldest sons to Egypt to buy grain. He won't allow his youngest son, Benjamin, to accompany him. Why? Because he doesn't want Benjamin to be harmed. Now, listen to me. Benjamin, by this time, is not a kid. He's at least, at the very least, he's 22 years old. I could take the time to demonstrate that to you, but... You're just going to have to go with me for the moment. He's at least 22 years old. But he's daddy's favorite. Why? Because Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. And of course, Benjamin is the other son born to the beloved wife, Rachel. And so, so here's your dad and he says, look, you guys go to Egypt, but I'm not sending Benjamin. I don't want him to get hurt. What? What about me, Dad? You, you 
care whether or not I get hurt. You just guys go. I'm keeping, I'm keeping little Ben at home. Little Ben? The guy's 6'3", weighs 220 pounds. You know, he's 22 years old. He's a man. What are you talking about? You guys go. I'm keeping Ben at home. Well, they come to Egypt. They bow down before the prime minister, of course, is Joseph. They don't know that. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. But because Joseph recognizes them, in verse 7, I mean, here are these poor guys. They've come to Egypt for one purpose, and that is to buy grain. And now they stand before the guy who can sell them grain, and he's accusing them of being spies. What is that all about? Look at verse 8. This is really, this is really interesting to me and, and a little bit difficult to put together. In verse 8, we're told, Joseph remembered his boyhood dreams. Dreams in which he saw all of his family bowing down before him. Now here in verse 6, ten, his ten older brothers are bowing before him, but of course that doesn't include all of his brothers. It doesn't include Benjamin and it doesn't include his father Jacob. So Joseph now puts into, plan, puts into action a plan to fulfill his dreams. Now, if you're just honest and you step back from the story for a moment, you've got to go, well, that's a little arrogant. Right? We, we seek in a little personal satisfaction here. You know, we, we seek in a little self-glory. I don't think so. Remember Joseph and dreams. Remember, Joseph and dreams. Remember, Joseph's learned the importance of certain dreams. He's learned that they can be messages from God. Not all dreams are messages from God, but Joseph has learned that some dreams are messages from God. He, that was true with the, the Pharaoh's cupbearer. It was true with the Pharaoh's baker. And it was certainly true with the Pharaoh himself. And we've talked about all of that. And so with that in mind, it's just interesting how that's just inserted there in verse 8. It's against the background of our being told in verse 8, Joseph remembers his boyhood dreams. That Joseph now says to his brothers, you guys are a bunch of spies. And they said, no, no, we're honest men. He said, well, okay, look, if you're honest men, this is how we're going to find out. All of you will remain here except one. And that one will return to your father, and he'll bring back to me this younger brother that you claim to have. And if he brings back that younger brother that you claim to have, I'll know that you're honest men. And then look at verse 17, and don't miss the impact of these words. Joseph places them in custody. It's the same language used back in Genesis 40, verse 3, to describe the imprisonment of the cupbearer and the baker. And the Scripture says Joseph placed them in custody. It doesn't mean he set them up at a nice motel for a few days. It means he threw them into prison. They've come to Egypt to buy grain. They're accused of being spies, and now they've been imprisoned. But not for ten years, for three days. After three days, Joseph releases them and he tells them, look, I fear God. 
Not quite sure what they thought that meant at this moment. It's, it's, it's kind of the broad term for a deity. I fear God. It's not I fear Yahweh. I fear God. Therefore, I've decided that one brother will remain as a hostage. The rest of you can return to your father, but don't return to Egypt without your youngest brother. And then the brothers begin to discuss that among themselves in their native tongue. They, they talk among themselves. And they talk about the fact, you know, we're in trouble here because of what we did to Joseph. I mean, that, God's punishing us. And, and, oh, what a group of people. And as they discuss the fact that they're in trouble because of what they did to Joseph and God is punishing them, Reuben, the oldest son, speaks up and says, it's not my fault. I mean, you've got to love this guy. I mean, everybody here, you know, is on the hook. And, and Reuben speaks up and says, I told you guys not to do that to Joseph. It's not my, what's he trying? He's not just defending himself. He's letting it be known. I may be the oldest son, but I'm not going to be the hostage. Now, of course, Joseph understands every word they're saying, which causes him to withdraw and to weep in private. Then he returns. And when he returns, I think in light of hearing poor Reuben, he chooses Simeon, the number two son, to remain his hostage. And then Joseph orders his brother's saddles, saddlebags to be filled with grain and, and also for the money, the, the money they brought to buy grain with, for that money to be put back into their saddlebags. And so they, the nine minus Simeon, they begin their journey home. Along the way, for some reason, one of them opens the, one of these grain sacks and inside it, he finds the money he took to buy grain. And now they're all afraid. Now they're all scared because this is going to make them look like they're thieves. That's when they wail in verse 28, what is God doing to us? When they get back home, they, they report to Jacob. And then when they all open their sacks, when, when they open the rest of the sacks to pour out the grain, behold, in all of those sacks is found all of the money that they took to Egypt. And now Jacob is afraid. Jacob is afraid because he's fearful that his sons are thieves or he's fearful of the fact that perhaps they sold Simeon into slavery. He doesn't trust these guys. And the reason I know he doesn't trust these guys is because later on he'll say, okay, okay, perhaps this was just an accident. He doesn't believe it's an accident at this point. He believes there's something wrong going on here. Well, in chapter 43, their grain is gone once more. Their stomachs are empty. So Jacob orders the nine oldest sons to return to Egypt. And something I just want you to note, because it just adds to the tension of the story. There has been almost no expression whatsoever on Jacob's part. Listen to me. There's been almost no expression on Jacob's part of any concern for Simeon. Never mentions. Not talking about Simeon. It's been, in my estimation, I don't know how long the grain they bought would last. I don't know. I don't know how long that would last. 
I would have to think from the way the story unfolds that it had to have lasted two, three, maybe four months. What we do know is it took a week to go from Canaan to Egypt, a week to go back from Egypt to Canaan. And Jacob now says to his daddy, you know, I mean, Judah now says to his daddy, you know, if we hadn't been talking about this for so long, we could have gone to Egypt and come home twice. Which means they've been debating this. They must have been Presbyterians. (laughs) You know, it, it means that they've been debating this thing for at least a month. For at least a month. But now Jacob takes charge. Look at verse 3 in chapter 43. I mean, Judah takes charge. I'm sorry. Look at verse 3 in chapter 43. Judah says to his daddy, Father, we got to go. In verses 8 and 9, Judah pledges himself, I'll be responsible for Benjamin. So here they are. And just moving ahead quickly in the story, Jacob has now relented. He allowed them to go back to Egypt. He sent with them gifts for the prime minister, plus money to pay for two orders of grain, the first order and now the second. He also appears to be softening, I'm glad to say. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, you see, it's in verse 12 that he admits that perhaps the return of the first payment was simply an oversight. Which suggests, you know, at first he was blaming somebody for what happened here, either the Egyptians or his own sons. Verse 14, he does what he hasn't, what we just haven't seen him do before. He blesses them. May God Almighty grant you mercy. And finally, I'm glad to tell you, in the latter half of verse 14, he expresses, he sort of, he kind of, in a way, Indirectly, he shows some sort of concern for Simeon. when He says, you know, now your other brother, not my son, your other brother, you know, now he can be returned to you. So they go back to Egypt, accompanied by Benjamin, stand before Joseph. Joseph orders that a meal be prepared for them and invites them into his home. That scares them to death. They expect that they're going to go into the home of the prime minister and be arrested, imprisoned, and then enslaved. But they have no choice. And so they go to the home. They talk with the steward, the head servant in the household. They explain to him about the money. Look at verse 23. The steward speaks to them words And this doesn't come across in English, but it's one of those important words in the Hebrew language. The the steward, the, the head servant in Joseph's household, he speaks to them words of shalom. Words of peace, assuring them. Assuring, look at this. Assuring them that he, the steward, the head of Joseph's household, perhaps the head bookkeeper, that he's received full payment for the grain. Isn't that interesting? We're not told exactly what that means. I mean, either, you know, somebody's cheating on the books here or Joseph paid it. But somebody's covered the expense or at least the expense has been covered in some fashion. I received payment in full. You guys just be at peace. Simeon's returned to them. 
They enter Joseph's home. They bow down before him. All 11 brothers. He asks about his father. He acknowledges Benjamin, which again causes him to be overcome with emotion so that he excuses himself so that he can weep in private. He returns to them. The meal is served. The brothers are amazed to find themselves seated at the table in a proper you know, in, in order of their age. And when the meal is served, Benjamin is served five times more than the others. Now look at verse 34 as we come to a close here. Look at verse 34. Now, instead of grumbling about the favoritism being shown to Benjamin, who has just received five, you know, five turkey legs while all the rest have only gotten one, you know, instead of, instead of grumbling about all that, this is what we're told in verse 34. They drank and were merry with him. Now, who's the him? So I, I called my wife in two days ago. I said, who's the him? This is exegesis according to Linda. And I think she's right. The him is Benjamin. It's not Joseph. It's not Joseph because, one, Joseph isn't seated at the table with them. Egyptians would not sit down to the same table with Hebrews, despised shepherds. Egyptians were much too snooty to sit and have a meal with a bunch of common shepherds. So... Joseph didn't see, and even if Joseph were seated at the table, they wouldn't have known who Joseph was. They still don't know who Joseph is. And lastly, Joseph's the prime minister. There are a bunch of common shepherds. He's the prime minister. You think you're going to, you know, be frivolous in the presence of the prime minister of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth? I don't think so. So they him here, Benjamin. What's that mean? That means the ten other brothers are sitting with daddy's favorite. And they're enjoying together the good time. They're merry together. Judah, Reuben, Simeon, Benjamin, all the rest through God's severe mercies. He's beginning the work of reconciling the members of this horribly dysfunctional family. Now, don't let this story, you know, be so much a part of your Sunday school mentality that you lose the humanity of what's going on here. I mean, this is one difficult, trying, desperate situation after another, being experienced by people who don't even like each other. I mean, even if you set aside Benjamin, just set aside Benjamin for a moment. You take the other ten brothers, what do you got? You got ten brothers born to three different mothers. There's just an inbred rivalry that's, that's just... It's just eating this family alive. You know, how strong? 
strong enough that they were willing to kill Joseph, strong enough that they were, they were mercifully willing to just simply sell him into slavery. How noble of them. I mean, think of the tension and hatred that has to exist in a family situation to allow those kinds of realities to come to pass. And now they don't have any food, seven years of famine. Jacob, their father, he's losing it. They can't get him to think straight. He can't make a clear, decisive decision. Their bellies are empty. Their hearts are heavy. Their children are crying for want of food. And what do you think their wives have to say back home when they go to the tent? I mean, how do you think that conversation went? You, you see this bowl, there's no grain in it. Well, what do you think I'm supposed to do? You wimp. I mean, just think of all that's going on here. Now, stop. Stop. Think about all that's going on with you. And stop and think. Is this, in fact, God's severe mercy? A severe mercy I don't quite understand at the moment. But that He's going to use and through which He will work to accomplish better things than I could possibly imagine. Can I trust Him? If He is your Lord and Savior, you can trust Him. I don't care how high the waves roll. I don't care how hard the wind blows. I don't care how hot the fire. If what you desire above all else is that the Lord be glorified and that His being glorified through you proves to be a blessing to others, then rest with confidence in your Lord and seek to understand this moment of severe mercy. And don't be so egotistical to think that it's all about you. Because it's not. It's about the Lord and His purposes, His glory, His honor, and the good, temporal, and eternal blessings of others. For to me, for to me, to live is Christ. And to die, that's gain. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths. Burn them into our minds and hearts. Lead us in the way of your truth. May we be your men and your women, your boys and your girls.
May we see Your hand at work in our lives. May we trust Your divine purposes. May we take our burdens and lay them at Your feet. Father, may we humble ourselves before You, before others. And may we pray with a holy passion that You would use us however You choose, as long as You be glorified and others be blessed. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.